This week's passage comes from 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God, glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is is scarcely saved, what will become of the godly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you do, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in charge, but being an example to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you be sober-minded be watchful your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being ex- experienced by your brothers brotherhood throughout the world and after you have suffered a little while the god of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Today we conclude our consideration of 1 Peter. We've gone to Peter and asked, what does it mean to be a faithful disciple? And we believe that Peter would have something particular to offer to us, not simply because he is inspired in his capacity of writing the letter, but because Peter is someone who was called to follow Jesus and left everything behind to do so, but then he would uh, confess wrongly before Jesus and be re- rebuked. Ultimately, he would, be, he would reject Jesus as Jesus proceeded to the cross, but then Jesus would visit him and restore him, and then upon him the church was built as we see in the early chapters of Acts. So Peter represents to us someone who embodies, who has lived, the call to discipleship, the failure in that call, and then the the waking up to embrace it, to engage it at a heart level. And that's really been the desire, the goal of this sermon series. Uh, in, In some ways, we're not that dissimilar from the early church. Peter is writing to churches who in the midst of their suffering are tempted to forego their allegiance to Jesus, to turn to other things or to put their Christianity on the back burner 
in order that they would not suffer or be afflicted for the decision of faith that they have made. Peter says this decision is crazy. What's interesting about Peter is he doesn't say your decision is crazy because you're going to have so much more with Jesus. He doesn't say your decision is crazy because you're going to have it so much better with Jesus in terms of an earthly outlook. What he says is, with Jesus, you're going to have suffering. But in the midst of that suffering, you get more of God if you're faithful in the midst of it. And this is what Peter holds out and says, it is the greatest treasure that you could possibly aspire to and pursue. Do we see it that way? Uh, in our house, if you've read the book, you get to watch the movie. In most cases, I would assume there, there probably are exceptions to that. But Lewis read the first Harry Potter book, and so we sat down Friday night to watch the movie, and, uh, which, of course, he was delighted to do. But I was reminded of, of that first story. Right? The first Harry Potter movie now is 16 years old. If you were feeling young, I just destroyed that feeling in, in you. And so it tells uh, the beginning of, of Potter's story, which is that for the first 11 years, he's handed off to his non-magical aunt and uncle, the Dursleys. And he lives there in a cupboard under the stairs, oblivious to his real identity and to the world in which he lives. He doesn't know that he's magical. He doesn't know the true story of his parents. He doesn't know that the world he exists in is magical. He doesn't know that there are people who care for him and look out for him. Until his 11th birthday, he gets his invitation to Hogwarts. And eventually, Hagrid comes to pick him up. Hagrid comes to pick him up. Wow, there's some passion there. So I'm going to mind myself when it comes to... Now I'm really self-conscious. Hagrid? Are we all on the same page now? All right. Hagrid comes to pick him up. And reveals the truth to Harry. And then Harry goes to Hogwarts. Now, can you imagine Harry, if after spending a semester at Hogwarts, in which he learns that he's magical, the world is magical, he builds all these friendships, he ends the first semester, and he says, you know, this was interesting, but the studying is a bit much. Voldemort seems kind of scary. I'm going to go back to the Dursleys and live in the cupboard under the stairs. You'd say, that's crazy. Not only that would, it would be an insane decision, but it would be such a horrible story. But this is what Peter's writing to the church. That's what he's writing to us. Having tasted of the glory of Christ, having seen the king been made victorious in his resurrection, having been, having been filled with the Spirit, will you now turn back and go back to living the way you were as a Gentile? It's a bad story. It's not a compelling one. And so Peter says, no, faithfulness is the road that you are called to. And yes, there will be temptation and suffering when things don't go the way you want them to go. Right? The temptation is to walk another way or to just back away a little bit from God who doesn't seem safe and to go a different direction. But Peter says, no, everything hinges on how you remain faithful in the midst of the suffering that comes upon you. Now, what's great about Peter and Christianity in general is it's really a totally unique view of suffering. If you look at most Eastern religions, right, their view of suffering is that suffering is an illusion. And it helps you, all you have to do is um, peel away the illusion and you realize that suffering doesn't really exist, that it's only based on your false expectations for this world. But if you look at Western secular notions of suffering, 
right? It's avoided at all costs. Suffering is bad. It has no purpose. Let's remedy it. Christianity stands in the middle and says, suffering is real. And it hurts sometimes a lot. But it has purpose. In fact, it has incredible purpose. That's the school that we are called to, to draw near to God. Let's begin to look at our passage. We'll start in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Peter says several things about suffering here. First of all, do not be surprised. You as a believer, you who worship the God who became flesh and redeemed us through a course of suffering and now calls you to the same course, you should not be surprised when suffering comes upon you. It is part of the road that God has intended. It is, the part, of the, it is uh, part of the way that he has set up redemption. In fact, from a biblical perspective, I would argue that your redemption cannot be accomplished nor completed without suffering. So when it comes upon you, do not be surprised. Secondly, Peter calls it a trial or a test. Right? Without suffering, our faith remains untested. It hasn't been set into the fire to see really what the metals are made of. And we can live then under an illusion that our faith is quite competent when it really is not. Can you imagine right, an aeronautical engineer who goes through school and never has to take a test? And he says, yeah, I've got this down. I, I understand things really well. And then he goes and he, and he gets a job, but he's again never tested, and he builds an airplane. Right? Who's going to be the person to fly in that airplane? I'm not. I don't know if he knows what he says he knows. He doesn't know if he knows what he says he knows. Why? Because it's never been tested. It's never been examined. He's never been called upon to set it forth in a real way. How dangerous then would it be for us to go through our life and to say, oh yes, I have deep faith in God. And for it never to be tested. How do you know? Without the trial of suffering, without that test, you would have no idea, really, the composition of your faith. In that sense, it is a gift. Thirdly, Peter says that our suffering is a participation in Christ's suffering. That it is directly connected to the suffering of our Lord. Now, we have to, we have to understand this in two ways. One thing that Peter is saying is that suffering happens when you are persecuted for identifying with Jesus. So you can imagine a middle school student who sees someone who's being picked on and uh, set apart right, in an unkind way. And because of his or her faith in Jesus, he or she rallies to the defense of that student who is being picked on. And then the friends that she or he supposedly had turn on him or her, that is suffering for identifying with Jesus, for picking up the ethic of the risen Christ and saying, I'm doing this, I'm acting in this good because I believe it's what honors Christ and then to suffer for that, that's one kind of suffering. So that's one way we participate in Christ's suffering, but there's another way we participate and that is when we suffer for having been called down a road that we just cannot understand. Right? To be called into some degree of suffering where we say God is good and God is loving and He is for me, how could He call me on this road? And in that we identify, right, with our Lord who would pray in Gethsemane, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. 
This isn't the road I want to go down. Right? And yet he remains faithful and he suffers as a result of that faithfulness. So you can suffer for identifying with Jesus, but you can also suffer in terms of being, remaining faithful while being called into a broken place, while being called into hardship and heartache. And in this, amazingly, we actually participate in Christ's suffering, the suffering that ends up being redemptive for the world. Our suffering is both redemptive for our own hearts and redemptive for those around us. Now, there's one other thing we have to say about suffering that we really need to nuance and be careful about, and that is that Peter makes it clear at a number of points in his letter that we are called to suffer for righteousness, and suffering for unrighteousness doesn't count. But we often confuse the two and don't examine our hearts and our lives with real clarity. Suffering for righteousness is one thing. Suffering for unrighteousness is quite another. And this is what Peter is getting at in verse 15. When he writes, uh, if you're insulted in the name of Christ, in 14 you are blessed. Uh, We'll come back to that in 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. What Peter is saying, the temptation will exist in the midst of your suffering to turn to something evil and wicked, and then you'll suffer. But don't pretend that that kind of suffering is what Peter's talking about. And as we examine this, Peter took up the same idea a few weeks ago. We talked about Ted. Right? Ted was, uh, he's frustrated at work under a very demanding, unreasonable boss. He's frustrated at home because he doesn't connect with his wife and feels judged by her. But he's trying to be faithful. Right? Day in and day out, he's praying. He's going to church. He's saying, what does it mean for me to be faithful in the, in the midst of this? But then Ted loses his job. And it's, that's just a bit much for Ted. And so he still talks a language of faithfulness, but he starts drinking a lot. And that alienates his relationship with his wife even further. Right? Things continue to spiral downhill. Now, up until that point that Ted lost his job and chose to go a different direction, he was suffering for righteousness. It's like, why have you called me down this path, God? But at the moment that he chooses to take a different course in the midst of his suffering, he may still talk like he's suffering for righteousness. Oh, I'm in such a hard place. All these hard things are happening to me. Woe is me. But really, he's suffering not for righteousness, but for disobedience. And we are all very clever and very subtle at the ways in which we tell ourselves, oh, we're suffering for righteousness. Look at all we're doing when in reality we're suffering for disobedience. There has to be clarity about the two because to confuse them will always put us in a place of frustration and never in a right place of repentance and moving away from that disobedience that brings a certain suffering. So, why is this suffering worthwhile? Why is it significant? Why does it hold out hope? Look at 4.13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Right? Your participation is participating in the story of Jesus and its revelation. And look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. What does it mean to suffer well? It's like entrusting yourself to God so that what? How do you know if you're entrusting yourself to God? You continue to do good. 
You don't stop. You don't pull away. You continue to press in faithful obedience and doing good, the good you believe God is doing in this world and has called you to, even though you live in the midst of suffering. And how great is the temptation in the midst of suffering to simply pull away? Like, God, if this is the way you're going to treat me, then I don't really have anything to offer you. Peter says, no. If you trust him, even in the midst of lacking understanding, if you exhibit real faith, right, then you will continue to pursue good even in the midst of that suffering. That's a terribly difficult call. It's almost uh, impossible. You know, almost every hero story even has this little window where the hero is so overwhelmed by what they're trying to defeat that they pull away and kind of give up their call and enter a place of despair before returning to their agenda. A good picture of it is The Dark Knight Returns, the last Dark Knight movie in uh, Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy, right, where you have the bad guy Bane who actually breaks Batman's back. And he's sent away to some weird underground prison, which I never really understood, but in this place. And he exists, and he's just he's in despair. So I'm giving up. I failed. Let's say I can't be fixed. And gradually he becomes repaired. Gradually hope is restored. But to get out of this underground prison, you've got to make this, you climb up this uh, cylinder in the ground, so to speak. And at the very end, you've got to make this crazy leap right, in order to get out of the hole at the top of the prison. Well, he keeps trying and trying and trying. He can't do it and can't do it and can't do it. And so he talks to the wise old sage in the prison. And he says, the only person who's done it did it without a rope. Right? So each time Bruce Wayne is trying to get out, he does it with a rope, in which the wise old sage is suggesting you don't really have faith. You're not really throwing all of yourself into it because you're still reserving part of yourself. You're still protecting yourself in that act. And then, of course, says, well, okay, I'll get rid of the rope. And he does this leap where he's either going to live or die. And he makes the leap and comes back and defeats Bane. Right? And it's the story of, you know, at this point of suffering despair, coming back from it, and, and then uh, willing oneself strengthening oneself. And then finally, what is Batman's leap of faith? It's a leap of faith in himself. That if he trusts wholly in himself, right, he'll be able to make the jump. And that's the story of the culture that we live in. Believe more in yourself, right, and you'll ultimately make that leap. But the story that Peter offers is, no, you actually have to just leap into the pit. You have to die. And it's suffering that actually helps that to come about because your faith can't be located in yourself and all faith that is located in yourself ultimately has to be undermined and placed in the faith of the one who actually saves you. What does it look like when we actually do this and how does it happen? I think it begins by remembering even in the midst of our struggles and our suffering the words of Jesus in Matthew 26. We often lament that our road is hard. We get frustrated, right? I get frustrated with you. You get frustrated with me. We get frustrated with one another. And in 39, I'm reminded that Jesus says uh, in the garden, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Where do I find encouragement to be faithful in the midst of my suffering? 
the first thing I do is look to the one who has suffered on my behalf, who would long for this cup to pass from him, but instead goes to the cross, allows his enemies and his created beings to put him to death so that we might be redeemed. And if we look at 1 Peter 5.10, Peter tells us, and after you have suffered a little while, right, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Your suffering is not the end of the story. Your suffering serves purpose, and Jesus is promising that it will result in his glory and that you will be restored, confirmed, strengthened, and established in the midst of it. The living God pledges that by virtue of your faithful obedience, you will be established. You will be confirmed. You will be strengthened. You will be built up in the midst of that obedience, in the midst of that suffering. Thank goodness. Does that not breed just a degree of humility? That I live in a world that is precarious. I have control over nothing. I'm on a race course in some ways towards death. The ways in which I try to exercise control and protect myself from suffering are largely illusion. And God says, through this suffering I will do remarkable things. I will continue to tell the Jesus story and redeem the world. And ultimately you will be established in Christ as a result of it. You say, okay, I don't know very much. But I know that I would rather throw my lot in with this God and with Christ than I would in my own resources, in my own attempts to protect myself from suffering. And this is the kind of humility that Peter describes as he enters into chapter 5. It's the kind of humility that the elders of the church should demonstrate. So for me and Ryan and Matt and Zach and Rob and Ken and Dave and Gary, right, that we would joyfully and in humility, right, willingly, shepherd the flock and seek to serve you right, because we understand how we've been served by Christ. It's a call to humility for you to submit yourself to the elders, right? And where Peter drives is down to 5.5. Five. Likewise, well, he's a younger bit. And then in the next sentence, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Given what Peter has described, any kind of aspiration to pride is, is diametrically opposed to the gospel that he describes, And if we understand this humility and understand what it means to live in faithful obedience in the midst of our suffering, Peter then offers three imperatives, right? He's winding down, he's closing the letter, and he says, boom, 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 in 5.6, 5.8, and 5.9, number one, humble yourselves. Quit thinking that the world revolves around you. The world revolves around Jesus Christ, and that's the end of the story. And you can participate in it now with joy, Or you can participate in the end, kicking and screaming, but either way, you're going to participate. So humble yourselves. The story is not about you. Number two in 5.8, be sober-minded. Right? This is exactly what it sounds like. Peter's saying, stop being drunk. Be watchful. Be intentional. Be looking out. Right? The way that you engage your faithful obedience in the midst of this world requires you to be focused. It requires you to be intentional. And if you, if you uh, give yourself over to some pleasure that is distracting and consuming, you aren't going to be ready 
to face the suffering that will inevitably come upon you, nor to meet the devil who is hunting for you. In verse uh, 9, resist the devil who prowls about for you like a roaring lion. Somewhat dramatic, and I think we don't really sometimes know what to do with the devil. Uh, we, we sometimes feel like um, we see something that is uh, demonic or talk about demonic, and it feels like something that's just very difficult to objectify. But Peter could not be more clear that Satan prowls about for you. He would love to devour you. He would love to devour the churches to whom Peter is writing. And if you don't take that seriously, you're incredibly foolish. Right? Yes, we all confess that those who are united to Christ uh, pass through judgment. But at the very same time, the New Testament cannot be more clear that many are deluded. The way is narrow, and only a certain number pass through the gate. And according to Matthew 7, on that day of judgment, many will be surprised, thinking they knew Jesus but did not. Those who surely did not take seriously that they were being hunted and prowled about. And if I am the devil, you know, sometimes we think, as soon as we hear the devil, we think about all kinds of sensational demonic activity. You know, if I'm the devil, I'm just going to distract you. If I'm the devil, I'm going to make you so busy that you can't do what's really important. If I'm the devil, I'm going to be incredibly subtle and try to pull you away from God in ways that you don't even notice. Because the sensational, in many ways, only affirms our faith. Right? To see dramatic demonic activity, we say, wow, all this is very real. But to simply be sucked into the world around us in a slow and steady pace, well, that's something that's far more dangerous. As we conclude, Peter, this morning, as we consider the weeks that we've gone over leading up to this, what do we walk away with? Remember that you are elect in exile. Peter says that you have been chosen, you've been called out of this world, and you exist here as a sojourner, but this is not your home. If you pretend that it is your home, if you look for some degree of comfort here, you are looking in the wrong place, will be disappointed and only alienated in your relationship with God. And because you are elect in exile, you are privileged. How are you privileged? You're privileged that God would permit suffering to come into your life in ways that make you new. Suffering in the Christian economy is a privilege. It means that God cares for you and would have you transformed. Suffering is your gym. It is, your, uh, it is the place where your faith is worked out. And without suffering, your faith does not get worked out and does not become stronger. And so we remember these imperatives, which are an excellent summary of Peter as a whole, in terms of what does it mean if I take my faith seriously and suffering comes upon me? What does it look like to be faithful? Humble yourselves. Be sober-minded. Resist the devil. How are you engaging those three things? to make sure that you don't fall in the direction that the church is to Pe- who Peter writes is falling. You know, I was trying to think of a metaphor that kind of captured Peter. Molly's playing basketball, and I thought, you know, if you imagine a, yourself a basketball player, and you imagine yourself practicing hard for the team and, and getting ready for the big game, but one day the coach isn't there, and he set out a workout for you, but 
the coach had something to do, and you decide to spend all of practice uh, cutting your suicide run short, and you do half your free throws, and instead of doing your layups, you play on your phone. But then you suddenly realize that the coach wasn't absent at all, but only watching. Just to see whether you really believed in the team, and in the game, and in participation. And you realize that all you've done is revealed to him that you really don't exhibit faith in the team and in the game. How many of us will stand before the risen Christ and be filled so significantly with regret? Right? Yes, you may make it in by the skin of your teeth. The New Testament indicates that. But can you imagine that moment where you think about all the times where you, you skipped out on the runs and you shirked the free throws and you played on your phone and you thought, I'm okay because I believe in Jesus. Peter's kind of saying, what kind of faith is that? It's not something that glorifies Christ. It's not something that makes you new and it's not something that tells the Jesus story to the world. And if we were to end and be faithful to Peter, I think we would end on this note. That your lack of faithful obedience, Peter would say, is not because you can't be obedient. It's because you won't. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for the ways in which we uh, take for granted what you have done for us. We take it for granted in ways that we assume that the, uh, the victory is had in such, such a way that we don't uh, need to participate. And we are frustrated with you because you don't do what we would want you to do, because you care for us and would make us into something different through our suffering. We turn to other things, and we reject you, and we love ourselves in harmful ways. Would you please forgive us and open our eyes and open our hearts and help us to throw ourselves into committed discipleship, to follow you earnestly and to be frequent at repenting and frequent at humbling ourselves. Would you make us strong in the sense that frequently we are watchful and sober-minded and that frequently we are keeping a lookout for the devil and being sure to resist him and the temptation that comes with him. Would you continue to make us new and make us a people that by the very way we live in the midst of suffering, demonstrate humility and a lack of anxiety and a trust in you and a commitment to doing good that speaks your glory throughout Rockwall, throughout Dallas, throughout the whole world. We pray that you would do something in us that we cannot do in and of ourselves that it would be to your glory and that we would participate faithfully. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.